Today's reading comes from Isaiah 6, starting at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing but never understanding, Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted, and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tent remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Good morning, everyone. My name's Cam Maxwell, and I'm one of the pastors here. If you haven't met, I'll hopefully get a chance to do that after the service today. Um, Welcome back, everyone, to the book of Isaiah. Uh, We're in our third week in our series in this part of the Bible. Uh, If you've ever struggled uh, with what it's like being a Christian uh, in Australia, perhaps the the feelings of just being a minority or um, just knowing that the rest of the world thinks we're a bit weird or deluded or something far worse, if you have those moments of fear about uh, what the future of the church will be like in our country or even our city, Uh, This city of churches seems to have less and less churches uh, every year. If you have those moments of kind of doubt and uh, pessimism, uh, spare a thought for the first people to read the book of Isaiah, some 600 years before Jesus. Uh, They were the survivors of a near annihilation at the hands of Babylon, the sort of superpower of the day. And I hate to think what kind of uh, trauma you survive uh, to be a survivor in an ancient conquest. It doesn't pay uh, to think long about it. And as one of the few survivors from your country, you experience the further trauma of being taken from your country uh, by the people who conquered you into exile, slavery basically, uh, at the hands of those who wiped out your country. On top of all that is the spiritual trauma. Your God didn't protect you. He let this happen. Uh, It's the first time in history that Israel, Judah, has fallen like this. 
You wonder, was, was he defeated by the Babylonian gods? You know, that's what they're mocking you about. I mean, they burned his temple to the ground and there were no cosmic consequences for it. Some god you have. Well, thankfully uh, for those exiles, the preaching of the prophet Isaiah, who was active a few decades beforehand, his preaching was recorded and was written down and, and spread around. I imagine it was very popular reading in Babylon uh, for the exiles. Because they're trying to work out what happened, uh, what went wrong, where's God in all of this, and I guess most importantly, what now? See, the Israelites would have known uh, very well that God had promised unconditionally, He would be their God, they would be His people, and through them, the whole world would be blessed. It's hard to see that though, isn't it? Uh, What's left of Israel, a, a tiny broken group of exiles, it's very hard to see a glorious future for them, let alone one where they bless the world. Uh, if you've been with us the last few weeks or caught up uh, sermons online, in the first five chapters, there's a couple of things that are very clear as they start reading this book. First, it's clear that God still intends to make Israel a blessing to the nations. Somehow, it's going to happen. So you could go back and read chapter 2. There's an astounding picture of uh, being painted of the nations pouring into Jerusalem, all coming to meet the God of Israel and to be blessed by Him. Now, this God of a tiny nation in the Middle East, a tiny tribe really, He's going to extend His rule and kingdom through the whole world. Try and imagine that if you're in exile in Babylon. I think that's far harder to imagine than, say, uh, a healthy future of the church in Adelaide. The other thing we've seen in the first five chapters is what went wrong in Israel. They had enjoyed the blessings of God's people so much, uh, things were good, uh, and they'd started ignoring the God who had blessed them. Uh, We've seen actually how the Israelites, they kept the formal requirements of the law, of their religion, uh, but then they just went and lived however they wanted. Uh, They were religious, but had hearts of stone. Uh, we've seen that the powerful were taking advantage of the rich, uh, of the poor and vulnerable. Uh, there's a complete lack of regard for justice and so on. That is, their religious practice became an excuse to live however they wanted without actually honouring or loving God. And we saw that God hated it. Today, chapter 6 takes us even deeper into the heart of the problem and gives us an even clearer solution than what they've seen so far in the first five chapters. And it's just what the exiles need to know. What went wrong? And what now? Uh, we see that what we see, what we see in chapter 6 is what Israel needs to do, what needs, needs to change at the heart level. And of course, we live in a very different part of history. But I think Isaiah chapter 6 gives us a brilliant clarity on how to live as God's people. So what we have here is God revealing. Uh, he's showing us what He is like. And the kind of things we learn from this revelation are life-changing. Isaiah sees things that he needed to know. He tells Israel what they need to know and what we need to know about God. So, uh, if you have the passage open, it would be great to keep it in front of you. Uh, In verse 1, we see uh, the kind of the detail that you kind of skip over very quickly. We hear all this happens in the year that King Uzziah died. Yeah. Why does that matter? Who's King Uzziah? Should we just skip on, keep moving? Uh, Not so fast. Um, If you're taking notes, you could jot down 2 Chronicles 26, 
2 Chronicles 26. That's where you can go and read a summary of King Uzziah, what he was like. Uh, Very briefly, he was a great king, uh, an excellent king. Uh, He ruled for a very long time, and under him there was peace and prosperity. He led the economy forward, he built great infrastructure, a brilliant military leader, strong leader. Uh, And for a while at least, he he loved God, and uh, well, until pride uh, led to his downfall. But he had a long and stable reign, which is unusual, uh, a stable reign, and there was security, and there was wealth. As is so often in uh, prosperous times, though, uh, God was increasingly overlooked by the Israelites. He was taken for granted, ignored, and eventually rejected uh, by Israel, by Judah. Um, The problem with a death of a great leader like Uzziah, well, the problem is, what happens next? After such great stability, what happens? Uh, Especially in the the historical context Judah are in, everyone has heard these whispers from the east, uh, Assyria, Assyria, Assyria. They are the the superpower on the rise. We've, uh, in the past couple of weeks, met a guy called Tiglath-Palliser III, TP3. Uh, He was out to conquer the world, and he was doing a pretty good job. It's not a great time to lose your legendary king if you're Israel, is it? So, what does God show to Isaiah? He shows him who the true king of Israel is. He's immortal, he's powerful, and gigantic. Uh, Have a look at how the Lord is described in verse 2. How is he he described? He's high and exalted, and he's seated on, on what? On a throne. He's a king. Uh, he, in verse 5, is clearly in the temple, which when you sort of think about what the temple is, it's, it's a palace for God. And in verse 5, Isaiah says it explicitly, verse 5, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. It's a pretty clear message, isn't it? Don't worry about Uzziah, decent king. He was never really in charge. That's the message, isn't it? It's as if to say, if you want help against the Assyrians... Look no further than the King of Kings. And so as a quick side note, I suppose, for us as a church, um, I find this a really comforting start to chapter 6, especially in a year when we're looking to plant a church later in spring. Uh, We've got plans, we're organising ourselves, um, but our our plans, our ideas and our leadership, um, I hope God will use those things, but I think the warning here for us is let's not pretend uh, that any of our leaders are actually in control Myself or Matt Lehman or Paul Harrington, who oversees the Trinity Network, like none of us are in control of successful church planting. The king on the throne is in complete control. I think that's the picture here. So, on the back of that, uh, perhaps you'd like to come tomorrow night to the Tonsley Hotel at 7pm uh, for a night of prayer and praise, uh, committing ourselves to this gigantic, powerful king uh, in the exercise of planting churches, asking for his help. All the details are in your leaflet. Do you see how gigantic he is, though? Uh, It's uh, pretty pretty easy to see this. He's not a small God. Uh, In verse 2, Isaiah sees that the train of his robe filled the temple. So the train is kind of, I guess, the hem, the very, very tiny bottom part of of his robe. The hem, the tiny bit at the bottom, it fills the biggest building Isaiah has ever seen in his life. The hem. Now, of course, uh, all of us know God's big. It's you know, one of the first things you learn. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. We know God is big. Even people who don't believe in him know he's supposed to be big. 
But I reckon seeing just his hem, putting that in perspective would be life-changing, don't you? I said before that in the prosperity of Israel, God had become, I guess, small in the lives of the Israelites. Like, we know he's big, but how big is he in his role in our life? If you sort of reflect on our past week, how much airspace did God have in my mind? How much time was spent uh, reading his word or speaking to him? Of all the words I used or spoke in the last week, how many were about him, praising him, or pointing others to him? I reckon there are, I find them a very humbling set of questions, especially if I imagine myself in Isaiah's shoes, beholding this, this gigantic God. That'd be a jarring and life-changing experience. So, uh, God is big, uh, and he's a powerful king. That much is clear. But actually, the main point of this passage is something, uh, I think, even more profound. You would have picked it up. God is holy. God is holy. Uh, We sung earlier, didn't we? Uh, Holy, holy, holy. We sung about seraphim and cherubim falling down before a holy God. It's a great song. Just pause and think, what on earth are we singing about? What's a seraphim? What's holy? What's holiness? Uh, I've thought about it quite a lot this week, not surprisingly. I found it's one of those words that the more I think about it, uh, the less certain I am I know what it means or how to explain it. So let's start first with seraphim. That's a bit easier. Uh, We know they have six wings, kind of flying around. And they're praising God. The other thing we know is the word seraphim means burning one. So they're kind of fiery angels, I guess, with six wings. And listen to what happens to when, uh, when they speak. Verse 4. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds of the temple, this gigantic building, they shook. I guess the idea is, like, you know how sometimes uh, fighter jets occasionally just fly over the top of Adelaide uh, and your whole house rattles and make you think you're about to die? Um, I think that's kind of what's going on here. The seraphim are impressively loud. Perhaps there's a whole army of them, or I don't know, but uh, either way, as they praise God, it's, it's a deafening uh, experience. And what a sight. Do you notice as well that Isaiah doesn't tell us at all what God looks like? No information at all. Maybe he can't see past his hem. And verse 4, there's smoke everywhere, maybe he can't see clearly. But he does see the effect that the presence of God has on these terrifying, loud army of fire angels. They cover themselves. They cover themselves. They're not worthy in the presence of God to do anything but praise Him. Not because He's big, but because He's holy. I learned uh, this week that one of the quirks of the Hebrew language is that you can uh, repeat a word to amplify it. So I'll give you an example. If I want to talk about pure gold, I would say gold, gold. By repeating the word, it makes it uh, even more pure, I suppose. So to say something is holy, holy, like that's amazingly holy. To say holy, 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 it's not kind of mindless repetition. It speaks of an absolute purity and absoluteness of God's holiness. Which takes us back to the problem. What is that word? What are we talking about when we talk of holiness? 
Uh, you can look it up in a dictionary or uh, Bible dictionaries or commentaries, and it usually finds at, at least two things uh, pointed to uh, in the domain of holiness. The first is it's describing something being separate. Uh, so God is not a part of creation, He's divine, He's separate, He's unique from it. The other thing you usually see uh, in the word holy is something like moral perfection. So moral perfection is somehow tied up to God's holiness. The problem is, I came across someone this week rightly pointing out, the seraphim aren't just saying separate, 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 are they? Or moral, moral, moral. You lose something, don't you? It's not really uh, capturing it exactly. I reckon we're kind of at the limits of language at one level, trying to describe the very essence of God, because I think that's what this is. It's almost like the word holy is how we describe godness. As to say, only one being is actually holy. Only one being is so unique, so unlike everything else, uniquely, morally perfect, magnificent. He's not at all like the God of other ancient religions. As you read about them, they're so obviously just human inventions. They're kind of just like us, except bigger and more godish. This God is so unique. He's holy. He's so unlike us, I don't think anyone would dream him up. Now, I could keep going and keep trying to explain uh, the word holiness. I, I find it difficult. I find it difficult to explain. It's also good just to pause and think, what what do we even mean when we talk about uh, being holy as God asks us to be a holy people? How is that even possible if the word holy is describing godness? There's a lot to explore here on the topic of holiness, but today, uh, what I hope we can all see, Isaiah isn't there pulling out his theological dictionary at this point. He knows instinctively how to respond to the holiness of God. And I think that tells us as much about God's holiness that we need to know today. It's a bit like um, if I was trying to explain to you something like the concept heat, kind of get a vague sense of, you know, something's hot. But when I try and describe what it is, it can get very technical, explaining heat as a form of energy being transferred between two systems. It gets very complex and confusing, but the best way to learn about heat is to put your hand on a hot plate you thought wasn't on. Whatever definition we come up for with God's holiness, it's the response that matters the most. And so look at Isaiah. Isaiah beholds the Holy Lord and responds in verse 5, Woe to me, I'm ruined. He's not awestruck by the holiness of God, is he? As much as he is completely devastated by it. He's flattened. He's ruined. Occasionally, you'll come across people asking questions, you know, um, uh, such as, uh, what would you ask God if you had the chance? Uh, churches run sermon series, you know, what, what question would you ask God? It's, it's an okay question, of course, but you can see with Isaiah, it's a bit ridiculous at one level. Before a holy God, your questions don't matter so much, do they? They melt away. We might have theological issues about this or that. We may want God to clarify what he means or justify himself a little. Don't get me wrong, uh, we should explore and think carefully about all things. But the point is, before a holy God, how much will our questions really matter? Because what we see here is that in the face of the holiness of God, 
what we have absolute clarity on is ourselves. Isaiah becomes painfully aware, he's not just wandering around taking photos of seraphim, or he's flat on his face. He's expecting obliteration because the holiness of God is terrifying to anyone who isn't holy. Like even these seraphim are covering themselves up. Uh, some of you will know I used to work in a brick factory. I had a couple of great years uh, doing that. Um, the most impressive thing I reckon about making bricks uh, is an industrial sized brick kiln. Uh, I'm one of the privileged few who's perhaps seen one. You could look it up on YouTube, I'm sure. These things are you know, 60, 70, 100 metres long, um, hundreds of thousands of bricks going through at over 1,000 degrees Celsius. Uh, where I worked, there was little sort of spy holes along the kiln, so you could kind of look inside and see what was happening. Uh, it's an unusual experience looking at something over 1,000 degrees. Uh, even on the, you know, the right side of the thick, brick, uh, thick kiln wall, even still, you feel a bit vulnerable, uh, just a little bit nervous seeing such uh, raw power. Because you know, being exposed to that kind of heat obliterates. I've seen uh, angle grinders accidentally go through the kiln and poof, gone. The holiness of God is terrifying for Isaiah because it's so pure and it's so good. Isaiah is not protected. He knows full well he cannot survive an encounter with pure holiness. This is Isaiah as well. Like He's not, not a bad guy, he's a good guy. He's a mighty prophet. Even he is unclean. And so the only thing Isaiah knows for sure, in this instance, he's ruined. Uh, these days, um, we all know to some degree that talking about God's judgment is not a popular thing. Um, exactly the same in Isaiah's day, by the way. But you see here, it's not so much that Isaiah fears, fears judgment in itself. He just knows the effect of being the presence of a holy God that kind of does the judging for him, his holiness. Like Isaiah isn't mounting a legal case here against a judge. He's not trying to convince God he's okay. He's not comparing himself to someone else. In the classic line, at least I'm not Hitler. Or Tiglath Palace of the Third. He's not blaming his upbringing or his environment or start listing all the good things he's done. It's the holiness of God almost does the judging, doesn't it? It's clear to anyone who beholds that glory, yeah, fair enough, woe is me, I'm ruined. This holiness, I think it silences our comparison. Uh, we all know how good we are at condemning others very quickly. We look around the world or perhaps uh, sometimes even our church and we can easily spot all the faults God must be so angry with. But the holiness of God ruins us all, it flattens us all. And it's only then that the good news really starts. I said at the start that uh, chapter 6 here shows the exiles, in Israel, uh, the exiles in Babylon, it shows them a way forward. I think it's in Isaiah's response. They watch how he, he models for them the right way to, uh, to respond to a holy God. First, know that we're ruins. Actually, do you see here, uh, Isaiah says he has unclean lips and lives among a people of unclean lips. I think he's a representative of all of Israel at that point. So what he does and what he experiences, he's showing it's for them too. 
That is, as much as he first acknowledges that he is ruined, the same hope of his rescue is held out to us all. By the way, I'm not sure uh, why his lips are featured. It's a bit of an odd phrase, isn't it? Uh, Perhaps it's because our mouth, what we say, truly reveals what's in our heart and reveals the uncleanliness of our heart. We see that quite a lot, that idea in the Bible. It could be that. Uh, But the point is, anyone who knows we are ruined by God's holiness, anyone can see what happens for Isaiah can happen to us. Isaiah is one of the people as unclean as the rest of them, and just like the rest of them, is made clean. I think it struck me for the first time this week uh, in this passage, Isaiah doesn't ask for mercy. He was actually expecting obliteration, not mercy. And yet, God's holiness is a merciful holiness. The seraphim takes a live coal, a hot coal, uh, from the altar of the temple, and he puts it on Isaiah's lips. Somehow, this takes away his uncleanness, uncleanness, or he takes away his guilt, um, but I'm not sure how. Um, I've uh, scoured the commentaries this week, and uh, none of them, as far as I can tell, have even mentioned what seems pretty obvious to me. A live coal on your lips would hurt, right? Yeah? Like, I've, never put, I've never done a live coal on my lips thing, but I have tried to drink tea too quickly. I kind of get the idea. There's, there's some pain involved here. But the real puzzle is, how does it take away sin? Is it somehow connected to the altar of sacrifice? That's where sins are atoned for. Somehow there's a transfer of sacrifice. Is it somehow through pain that atonement comes? Or is the purifying, purging effect of sin being burnt away? Perhaps all those things, I'm not sure. What I'm sure about is whatever it is, it is a provision from God. It's not asked for, it's not deserved, and it's the only thing that enables Isaiah to live. Perhaps the most extraordinary thing, not only does he live, he's clean. It's somehow as if God's holiness has been transferred to him. I don't know how. I'm pretty sure uh, the exiles of Israel would also have struggled to work out, how does this work? Do we need to treat the lip thing ourselves? But because of Jesus, we can actually see something far more clearly than the exiles could. What we're seeing here, I think, is is a brief picture or perhaps think of it as a shadow of something still to come, of what God will do for everyone through the searing pain that Jesus faces on the cross. Jesus experienced the terrifying heat of a sinner in the path of a holy God. He did it in our place as our substitute. And so Jesus atoned for our sin, he took away our guilt, and amazingly, he transfers his holiness to us as well. He does that when we turn to Jesus for forgiveness, he makes us holy in God's sight. Isn't that great? Jesus' people, his followers, are a holy people. Think about what we've just read in Isaiah, the holiness of God. Think about what that means. We are a holy people. That's extraordinary. It's not because of what we do, but because of what he has done. Jesus carries our guilt away on the cross. He atones for it. Uh, Every week here, uh, we have people with us who are exploring who Jesus is, uh, perhaps some for the first time, for others uh, the first time in a long time. If that's you today, a really big welcome to you. Uh, I hope today you've heard me explain that all of us are ruined by God's holiness, 
Uh, Christians are not people who think we're any better than anyone else. And I especially want you to hear today uh, me say that every one of us can be saved and made clean by Jesus. No matter what our life has had in the past, it's as simple as being uh, turning to Jesus and asking him for forgiveness. Something we could do today. For all of us, uh, notice that this doesn't end with forgiveness, does it? Uh, Isaiah's life is spared, so the question now becomes, what is he going to do with his life? I think he models again for Israel and for us the right response to God's holiness and his mercy. In verse 8, Isaiah effectively hands his entire life over in the service of God. In verse 8, God asks, Who shall I send? Who will go for us? What's Isaiah going to say at this point, having just been spared obliteration? Oh, sorry, actually, I can't help with that one. I've got a pretty big week on. My lips are still a bit sore, so maybe next week. Of course not. Will I do? I'll go. It's not bravado, is it? It's uh, simply a man who knows he has been spared. And now the, the proper, the sensible response is to spend his life in service to the king. What Isaiah is modelling for Israel is also for us. It's the same question. What do we do with our life that we've been so graciously spared uh, by Jesus? Uh, This willing response of Isaiah, I think, shows us what service looks like. It's a wholehearted, thankful and willing uh, service. He doesn't even know what he's signed up for yet, is he? Does he? I think it's a model for us as Christians as we pick up our cross daily to follow our our Lord and King. And we know it's a hard prayer, not my will, but your will be done. I suspect, and I know this for myself, the times I pray and actually mean it are the times when I've grasped the holiness and mercy of God the best. Um, So where I want to go, though, is just looking briefly at the mission Isaiah has what's set for him, and uh, there are some parallels we can draw to our life, uh, for our life as we close. You would have noticed um, what Isaiah's called to do is not exactly a great gig, is it? Uh, Have a a, a look at verse 10. Uh, God's not saying, uh, preach and people won't listen to you. He's saying, because you preach, people won't listen to the truth. Because of your preaching, people will turn their hearts even further away and walk headlong into judgment. What Isaiah has signed up for is basically turning people to destruction through proclaiming the truth. Not a great gig. I, I find it hard preparing a sermon uh, in the best of weeks. I can't imagine preparing a sermon I know will lead to the destruction of my country. I don't know how I'd feel about that. It's, it's a tough gig. And so verse 11, Isaiah, he understandably asks, well, how long? It's a plea, isn't it? He doesn't want to see this go forever. Uh, The answer, though, it's not a pleasant one. Because of Isaiah's ministry, telling the truth, cities will be ruined, the people exiled, the land utterly forsaken. Now, it's, I think, fair for us to want to know uh, why God would operate this way. Like, doesn't God want to heal his people? Well, actually, yes, uh, he does. Uh, Verse 13 points us to a day where healing will come. Verse 13 points us to the glorious day where Jesus, uh, the true king of Israel, will come and heal his people. 
We'll have far more to say about that next week. But today, again, why does God allow hearts to harden in the first place? Uh, There is plenty to think through here. It's a complicated question, I think. Today, I want to, I think, suggest what it boils down to, though. I think what this boils down to is that if God doesn't heal his people, it's because there must be something more important. There must be something more important than Israel's healing, and it must be revealing who God truly is, that he's holy, and revealing the true state of Israel, they are unclean. As it turns out, when Isaiah does go and reveal these truths, that God is holy and Israel are not, it does harden hearts. I think what this tells us is if he had told them anything less, if he tried to work out how to shape the message so that they would turn to God, he hasn't told them the truth, which is in no way fitting of a holy God. Now, our mission is different to Isaiah's, isn't it? Our mission as a church is different. Uh, For a start, God's not sending us back in time, two and a half thousand years to wander around ancient Israel. Uh, But more than that, our our task as a church together is to share the good news, uh, the good news about Jesus. In him there is salvation. Having said that, verse 9 is something Jesus quotes regularly to help set our expectations in our mission. We'll find, just like Isaiah, when we speak of the holiness of God and our unholiness, people won't get it, they won't like it, and hearts will be hardened. We all know this to some degree. But, unlike for Isaiah, we know other hearts will be softened as they hear the truth. Other hearts will be warmed as they hear about Jesus and turn to Him and find salvation. That's our mission. And that is why we want to plant churches. We know there are many people who will hear and, return, and believe and find life. And we know that planting churches is one of the best ways to find them. So in the coming weeks and months, we're going to spend a fair bit of time thinking and praying about being a church on mission together. Some will be involved in the mission of sending, others in the mission of going and starting a new church. Now, I've never planted a church before, it's kind of new to me. I hear it can be pretty hard work. Just like I hear, sending a church can be pretty hard work as well. We are going to be doing something I think we'll probably find hard. But we do it because we're in the service of the Lord who has given us life. I'm speaking to myself here more than anyone. I I imagine there may be points uh, where we just wish it was easier. There may be points where we become discouraged or frustrated or tired. Like, I'm sure it's all going to be amazing, it'd be great, so don't worry. But just in case, uh, we have those moments. In those moments, I want to ask us to point each other, point me, uh, back to Isaiah chapter 6 and the terrifying holiness of God and his overwhelming mercy, his life-changing grace. That will be the thing that helps motivate us to keep going, to keep doing the hard work of serving him. You know, in those times when we're discouraged, things aren't running smoothly, when our ministry teams are feeling stretched too thin and when all these wonderful new people keep rocking up but we need to welcome them and love them into our lives, it's, it's tiring. Isaiah signed up for an impossibly hard thing. It seems to me that this experience, uh, just reflecting on the holiness of God that, that he saw, it seems to me that's what helped him persevere during those moments, during his impossible ministry. 
let it be so in our lives as well. Because they're no longer our lives if we have met this holy God. Would you join me in prayer? Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, there is none beside you. You are perfect in love and purity. And so we ask that you would grow in us a right self-awareness that we need your mercy to take away our guilt and to wash us clean. Please help us receive your mercy, turning to Jesus as our atoning sacrifice. And please grow us each day in our understanding and our love for what he has done for us on the cross. So please help us to live joyfully and sacrificially in your service. Please use each of us as your church with our different gifts and skills. Please help each of us through our service to help our world know of your holiness and your great mercy in Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.